Now with that, let's turn to our passage, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. The passage again is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And this is the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he has said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Again, good morning. Uh, welcome as we worship together. And as we do worship, not only do we praise and joy and gladness of who our God is, uh, we as a church and community, uh, we also grieve and we weep with one another even. And that's what we do, uh, not only within our church, uh, but with our brothers and sisters at our sister church in West Philly, as well as other acquaintances, friends, and family that we know are, have been heavily impacted uh, by this year, and especially uh, with the killing of Walter Wallace Jr. as well. And I want to provide a quick word of just how we ourselves at Renewal can just navigate uh, some of these things for ourselves. Uh, first, I would like to encourage everyone just to check in on others, especially residents in West Philly and all of the city, actually, and offer to pray for them, uh, see how you can be a source of help uh, they need a place to stay, they need any other help that you can provide. Pray for your African-American brothers and sisters, if you know any and if you have a relationship, ask how you can be of help and how you can be a listening ear and pray for them as well. Also stop and think deeply about what's going on. The things that are taking place, uh, many of the safe protests, what we're thankful for, uh, but even a lot of the destruction and looting and while we don't condone any of that and we pray against such acts, stop and think about what those external things are telling us about what's underneath uh, that's happening in our cities, our communities, and our nation. So as we stop and think, let's have that listening ear and a heart that weeps with those who weep. Third, uh, with this mindset, uh, a mindset of prayer, of deep thought, and even listening, uh, consider how the Lord 
uh, has been encouraging you and is encouraging now uh, to take these next steps and with these lens uh, navigate the world now uh, with what's going on, with what you see in people's lives and in our communities. And when you start looking at life uh, with these lens, the reality of what's going on, uh, happening in our nation, in our communities, opportunities will come up. Conversations uh, with family, with others and friends, uh, local opportunities that may come up for the betterment and safety of our African-American communities. Whatever your spheres of influence is, both locally, inside and outside of our church, uh, look at life with those lens. And finally, uh, let's pray. And let it not be just simply a 2020 thing, but a continued posture of prayer for this year, for next year, and here on out as we pray. Commit to pray for the safety and unity and comfort of those who are hurting. And let's do that now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up many things to you this morning. Uh, we lift up our communities. We lift up our local businesses, especially in the city of Philadelphia, the aftermath of what's happening, much rebuilding that needs to take place. And we pray for their safety, both physically, their financial well-being as well, the rebuilding efforts, let them not be discouraged. But Lord, we do pray, God, that these communities will grow and heal. We also pray, Lord, for the police force in our city and our continued prayers for them in our nation. We also pray, Lord, for constructive change, for the safety and the betterment of the people that they're protecting, and also for their own safeties as well as they try to protect us and serve us in these trying times. God, we lift up those who are afraid, especially those in the African-American community. Pray for those with mental illnesses, those living in Philadelphia with this Inherent fear, Lord, fear for themselves, for their children. God, give them comfort to know that they are in your hands, especially for those who are facing trauma, for those who directly experienced some of these racial injustices in their own lives. We pray that you would give them the hope and comfort of Jesus to know that there is one who understands and sympathizes with all those who are hurting. God, we pray for those who are confused, not knowing what to feel, what to think, or even feeling guilty for not feeling anything. Lord, give them clarity and guidance and a heart that learns how to weep with those who weep, yet without guilt. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. Forgive us for the ways that we carry our own biases that make us think that we're better, we're more privileged, or even a view that says it's them and not us. And God, finally, we want to pray for Walter Wallace Jr.'s family, especially his parents, God. Lord, give them much sweet, intimate moments in your spirit, Lord, to give them peace. And God, we pray, Lord, for the stresses that they are facing right now. Lord, we pray that their community will surround them with much love and comfort. And God, as we study your word on global missions, God, we know, Lord, that these things are related because your word in Ephesians 2 tells us that the sin of racial exclusion and superiority was a major stumbling block of the gospel. And Christ himself came to tear down those walls. As we read, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility so that we can be one new man in God through the cross. And God, this is the hope and the message that we want, that we want to carry with us in our communities, our city, our nation, Lord, the world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Pastor Dave mentioned, every month um, we try to pray uh, every week for different nations, and especially in November, we want to have an, ex- uh, an extra focus on global missions here at Renewal. And we want to intentionally think, pray, and engage with what's going on all around in the world and our involvement in what God is doing. And we call this global missions. Now, when we think about global missions, uh, these two words uh, immediately cause us to to dwell on the difficulty of the task. At times, even the impossibility of the task, which I hope to show us this morning, is wrong. And I think there are a couple of reasons why we tend to think that it's impossible or undoable. First, when we hear the word global, we don't hear or envision the the beauty of nations and people groups, families from tribes all over the world coming together to lay down their crowns, to worship our King Jesus Christ. Instead, when we hear global, we think big, too big. We think and we cower at the magnitude of the task when we hear a word like global. Second, when we hear the word missions, we don't hear the seriousness of Jesus' direct and clear command for all Christians to go and make disciples of all nations. We don't think or hear about the potential joys of playing a part in bringing individuals into everlasting life with God the Father. Instead, when we hear the word missions, we think pastors, super spiritual Christians, or outgoing Christians who have a unique gift of evangelism, as if evangelism is a specialized gift only for a select few. In other words, we think, not me. Hence, when we hear global missions, we don't hear the joys and glory and our participation of of bringing every tongue and tribe gathering around the king of the universe. We hear the magnitude of the task and a microscopic, insufficient view of ourselves. So my goal this morning is to show us how that is wrong from Jonah chapter 3 because in our passage, we don't walk away left with the thoughts of this magnitude, the magnitude of the challenge or the inadequacies of ourselves. Rather, we walk away with the magnitude of God and the all-sufficient power and the ableness of God to bring his salvation to the world. I recently read a book on missions, and typically when I read books or listen to messages about missions, I hear a lot of statistics, things about what's going on in the world and so forth, which is very helpful, very necessary. But the content of this book, it was an in-depth study on the character and the greatness of God. Because the author's premise was this. It was a two-part premise. First, he was arguing that God is worthy to be known and proclaimed for who he is, and that is the missionary motive and message. 
And the second premise was, those who know most about God are the most responsible and best equipped to tell of Him in the nations. And so as I pray about our church's role in global missions, I am more and more convinced that in our knowing of a missionary God who is worthy and beautiful and glorious, we will then become the most responsible and best equipped to tell of God to the nations, both in our communities and overseas. This morning, I want us to look at two things. First, I want us to see the grace of God in the Ninevites. And after we look at God's grace, I want us to look at the power of God in Jonah. And that will guide us for this morning. After that, I want to give us just one simple application. So let's do this by looking now at the grace of God in the Ninevites. Now, what we're doing this morning is a case study on what some call the greatest revival in history, which is not an exaggeration if you consider an entire city, a city that takes three days' journey from one end to the other. They all repent and believe in God. And we'll see that such a revival occurred not because it was a great and spiritually capable nation, but because of a great and able God. Now, though I have not personally done this, nor will I ever do this, it takes four hours to walk from Lincoln Financial Field in South Philly to the end of Broad Street, where it meets Sheltonham Avenue in North Philly, the two extreme ends of Philadelphia. Four hours. Now, I think you can do a four-hour walk in a day. And our city proper is slightly over one and a half million people. Now, given back then, cities like Nineveh, they weren't nearly as crowded as they are today, but reasonable estimates, anywhere from 120 to 150,000 people. So to think, 150,000 people believed in God. It's not an exaggeration to say that this was one of the greatest revivals in history. Now, when we read exactly what happened, look at verse 4. Jonah begins to go into the city, begins, going only about a day's journey. So even on the first day of his walk towards center city, he calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what do we read right after in verse 5? And the people believed God. They believed God, not after the end of the three days, not after Jonah finishes his missionary task, but as soon as he begins to preach, the people believed God. Now, how does one explain this? A city-wide repentance and revival occurring at the first words coming out of the mouth of a foreign prophet. And it must be that even before Jonah began to preach that things were already happening to the people of Nineveh, so that as soon as God's word arrives, they are ready to believe. Their hearts were primed. They've experienced an an array of things that made their hearts and their souls fertile and hungry for even a little bit of God's saving word. Now, we have a historical glimpse of what some of these things were. Nineveh was a city of Assyria. We know from Assyrian texts 
that a series of catastrophes impacted this city. There were enemy invasions, a famine that overtook the city, along with that, a fatal epidemic, which we know a little about, a severe flood even, and on top of that, a total solar eclipse, which to the Assyrians in their polytheistic mindset, it caused them much spiritual unrest. And so these series of events spiritually prepare the city of Nineveh to be receptive to God's word the moment it comes. Now you can take all of this, you can go in one of two directions here. You can take the skeptical route that removes God from the picture. And you can deduce that the Ninevites' repentance was a socially and historically caused one only. And God had nothing to do with it. Or you can take the route that says, God had everything to do with it. As much as God had everything to do with bringing Jonah to the boundaries of Nineveh to preach this message, God had everything to do with preparing Nineveh to be in such a spiritual state to hear his message. And both, Jonah and Nineveh were God's doing. God had been humbling Nineveh through these events, spiritually priming them. See, when we look at the state of our nation and the world, we can easily fall into this false premise that God is not active in our world, that he is absent. And I see this false premise in myself when I look at things such as detainment camps, still happening today in parts of the world. Ethnic killings, corrupt governments that prey on the weak. I see when I look at tragic killings of our African-American family members, our brothers and sisters, even in our own backyard. I see it at the social, political unrest in our nation and other nations, and I think, God, why don't you come and do something about this? Can't you intervene and deliver us from this chaos? You see, underneath this false premise of mine, I wrongly assume that God isn't present, that he's not sovereign over these things, but in fact, these things are in themselves God's response to the world's wickedness and our sins. You know, one theologian, Alec Matier, says that in a world created by a good and just God, the evils and injustice that we see, they are inherently self-destructive. He's saying that the very things that we see, they are expressions of God's wrath. They're the very responses that God has to a world that is inherently evil. And so how does God display his displeasure and his wrath, he says this. He says, you know what, world? Fine. Have it your way. Try go on living without a dependence on me. See how long you can go apart from a relationship with me. And so he allows us to reap the destruction that we've been sowing amongst ourselves. And in Romans 1, Paul lists, all the evils and all the sins of mankind and our ultimate rejection of God. And in response, he says, therefore, God gave them up. 
gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to their self-destruction. And Pastor Tim Keller also comments on this in his study on the prophet Isaiah, and he says that you can't simply see things like social injustice as merely meriting God's wrath. Did you catch that? We can't see the evils of this world and say, those things merit God's wrath and justice. God, come, display your wrath, display your your justice on these things. Rather, he says, the misery and the social breakdown, the, the economic and political devouring of one another, and all the emptiness and discontent those things bring, they are actually the outworking of God's wrath. And without understanding the wrath of God, it is impossible to fully understand why so many societies and empires and institutions and lives break down, he says. So is God an absent God or an unjust God? No. In fact, he is just. The resulting calamities of the world, in fact, show God's just response to our evils. And while he's not the direct cause of the evils, he allows us to self-destruct. But now, is God a good God? Because the very point of our self-destruction, the end, the purpose, what is it for? It is for our good. So that after being humbled and spiritually primed, as soon as the message of the gospel of hope and salvation reaches the ears of the nations, just like how Jonah's message reached the Ninevites, as soon as he entered the city gates, as soon as he spoke God's word, people repented. So that we would repent and we would believe in God after being spiritually primed. Is God a just God? Yes. Is he a good and gracious God? Very much yes. You see, the biblical precedence for change, the change that we want in this world, in fact, begins with repentance. For that's what repentance means, to change from one's ways. We see that in the king's decree in verse 7 of our passage. Let everyone turn turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. But you see, for that to happen, there must be a genuine spiritual repentance of the heart. Now the question is, how do we get there? How do we get to the point when we are so broken, so devastated, so humbled that we see our need for God? Because left to ourselves, and history has shown, our very own lives have shown, that we have not turned to God. So for us to get there, does not God allow us to see how miserable we are without Him? How desperate we are, how proud and how arrogant we are, how evil we are when we live as if God doesn't matter. Does not God in his sovereign wisdom and mercy allow the outworking of wrath against our evil? Why? So that we see our need for him and come to repentance. And that, brothers and sisters, is not only just, it is ultimately good for our good and for his glory. You see, if you do a survey 
and you ask, say, a hundred Christians, how they came to consider Jesus and to know him, to come and accept and believe in him, you're going to find a common theme in many of those Christians. It was when they were at their lowest, when they were broken, that when they considered that Jesus is actually someone who cares for them, who can help them. We read that in the king of Nineveh. You see, all his life, he built his identity upon a royal one, a royal significance, and yet he was brought to his knees through the outworking of God's wrath. And then he stepped off from his throne. And then he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he leads the country in repentance. Is that not ultimately good and gracious? What is it going to take for the nations to remove their royal robes? What is it going to take for you to take off that which you take most pride in your royal throne, what is it? Your most prized possession in this life, for you to lay them down before the cross of Jesus Christ and to put on your sackcloths of humility and repentance. You see, when we ourselves don't put on these sackcloths ourselves and when we are forced into the calamities of life and faced with the sobering truth that our lives are hopeless without Him, if He makes us seize that, is that not His grace and God's doing? And I pray that whatever ordeal you are in, that you do not miss its purpose so that at the end of it, even when you are forced into sackcloth and in the dust, that you can see God's grace and say, God is good. For as the one who orchestrates all things, who is sovereign over all things, even the bad, he's able to bring us, he's able to bring Nineveh, he's able to bring the entire world to repentance, through which God exhibits his grace to the world. That's the grace of God. Now, let's look at the power of God in Jonah. We just addressed the first obstacle when we hear those words, global missions, which is the magnitude of the task. And we counter that by doing a case study on the Ninevites and acknowledging God's involvement in the world, even through its calamities. We see the purpose of it in bringing repentance, and we see God's grace. Now, the second obstacle in global missions is how we dismiss our involvement in missions and how we relegate it to those whom we think fits this missionary mode, whether it be because of their spirituality, their gifts, their personality, and so forth. And to counter that, we look at Jonah, specifically his apathy. See, in our passage, we read about one of the greatest spiritual revivals in history. Now, let's think. What does it require for such a miracle to take place? Consider, what do you think? What kind of prophet, what kind of ministry would it take for an entire city to repent and believe? And one would imagine the greatest preacher and greatest missionary to have ever lived, right? Or one would imagine it must take the cooperative efforts of many and numerous churches to establish a grand-scale ministry event, right? perhaps with an impressive praise ministry, thousands of dollars invested 
to execute this greatest revival? Now I want us to observe a few things in our passage, or better yet, observe the lack of things in our passage. Because we see there was no grand scale ministry event. No extravagant praise ministry. No enormous amounts of money or the cooperation of multiple churches to facilitate such a revival. Jonah was not a famous, he was not extravagant. He was not this gifted preacher who was able to move people's hearts by his oratory skills. In fact, Jonah, he himself is barely mentioned in our passage. He's only mentioned in the first four verses. And that's that. And even when he's mentioned, all it says is that he rose, he went, and he proclaimed. And then he's out of the picture. And why does Jonah play such a minor role in our passage? So that it's unmistakable that Jonah is not the one responsible for the spiritual revival. God is. In fact, we can even see Jonah's apathy and his lack of compassion on the city still even after his ordeal on the ship, even after his time spent in the belly of the fish, and even after all of those things, he still lacks compassion on the Ninevites. Has there been change in his life? Yes, because this time at least he obeys, doesn't he? In our passage, verse 1, God gives the exact same command to Jonah to go into this city that he gave in the beginning of the book, but this time he does arise and go into the city. But that's it. He says he's his bit, and then he assumes, actually, that the Ninevites are going to dismiss God's message, so he sits by on a nearby hill, getting ready to watch its destruction. In fact, we see later in chapter 4 that he's going to just come out and confess that he was hoping that God's prophecy would be the basis on which the city becomes destroyed. Now, looking at his apathy, this passage is not promoting us to intentionally be like Jonah, to be okay with being apathetic and disinterested. We're not to walk away and think, okay, God is bound to do great things through my apathy. That's not the point. But it's to show God's plan to bring repentance to Nineveh. And his plans didn't change. Even in spite of Jonah's apathy, God's plan A was to use Jonah, and he still does, even though Jonah is not fully changed to have a compassion like God. And so, it's not a surprise that we see that Jonah, he does not preach an eloquent message. If you count only eight English words, in the Hebrew, it's only five words that he proclaimed. Now, There might be the likelihood that he said other things, but we still have the crux of his message, which was simply, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Friends, that might be one of the most unimpressive evangelistic sermons ever preached. Can you imagine if that's the sermon that's shouted into our cities today or to the tribes and nations in Africa? to the spiritually stagnant cities in Europe and so forth. But nevertheless, that was the message that brought the city to repentance. Why? How? Not because of the preacher, 
Not because of the eloquence of his delivery, but because it was the message God entrusted to Jonah. It was God's message. They were God's words. Our text tells us, and I'm looking at verse 5, that the people of Nineveh believed God, not Jonah. Not Jonah's words, but God's words. And if it is God's words, as Isaiah 55 tells us, the Lord says, My words that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friends, our confidence, our hope in global missions comes not from ourselves or in ourselves, but in the power of the message that we have been entrusted with. Some of you know Charles Spurgeon, perhaps one of the greatest preachers in modern day history, 1800s. Now God used him mightily to convert countless of Christians through his powerful and expressive sermons. Now Spurgeon himself, He came to know Jesus in a very small Methodist chapel one day. And he came to know Jesus through a sermon by a man whose name we don't even know. Now we do know that this man who preached that sermon, he had no education. He could barely read or write. And we have records that his sermon was entitled simply, Look unto me and be ye saved. And this is what his sermon was like. He preaches this, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Look, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But look at the text, look unto me. And many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. Amen. That was the sermon. Just 10 minutes of that and that was it. And yet, that was what was required. That's what God used to perform the miracle of Spurgeon's salvation, who in turn brought so many to Christ. See, it's God's word, God's message that brings the nations to repentance, not ours. And if that's what we present, not ourselves, there will be fruit. God's word will not return empty. Even when we may be unaware, even if we don't see it in our lifetimes. You know, I want us to see how true this is, even today, and has been true in history. You know, usually when missionaries come and preach for us, or when a sermon is about global missions, you know, there are usually stories and examples of missionaries from the field. And this morning, I don't really have any successful missionary stories for you. Well, at least not in the sense where, you know, we the world would define it as successful. Here's one. There's one missionary by the name of William Borden. He was born into a very rich and prestigious family. His family had made a fortune in silver mining. He's a local guy. He went to uh, the Hill School in Pottstown, right down the street. 
for high school. When he graduated, he went to Yale University, a really bright guy. Then afterwards, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And after that, he became the director of Moody Bible Institute at a very young age. By 21, because of his family, he was already a millionaire. Now, this is the early 1900s, mind you. But in his early 20s, he also heeded the call to serve in China in 1912. And on his way to serve specifically Chinese Muslims, he stopped by Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic. Once he arrived, he found out that he contracted cerebrospinal meningitis, and he died within that year. And he never reached his final mission's destination. He was 26 years old. You know, before he left, he was often asked, you know, why are you going to throw away your life in some foreign country? Especially when you can have such an enjoyable and worthwhile life here. You could do so much spiritual work here. You know, you have the Moody Bible Institute. He was actually a director of a missions agency as well. And you would think that as he laid sick in Egypt, he would have heard those words again, right? Why did you waste your life thinking, what a waste? I should have stayed. But before his death, he writes a simple farewell note in his Bible. And they found it right before they buried his body in Cairo. And the note reads this, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. So let me ask you, when William Borden enters the gates of heaven, and sees the glorious face of Jesus Christ, do you think Jesus is going to say to him, you should have stayed in the States? Do you think Jesus' words to William will be anything less than, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's joy. I find William Borden's missionary career to be very successful. I find Jamieson and Catherine Powell's missionary careers to be very successful because both at the age of 29, four years ago in 2016, they are driving through Nebraska on a Sunday. They're on their way to their final round of missionary training before going to Japan as full-time missionaries. When a semi-trailer truck rear-ended their minivan, that couple and the three young children Ezra, age three, Violet, 23 months, Calvin, two months, died instantaneously in that crash. Do you think Jesus' words to this beautiful family of five will be anything less than, well done, good and faithful servants. Come and share in your master's joy. Henry Martin once wrote, if we labor to the end, and at the end of our days we don't see one convert, it shall not be worse for us in time, and our reward will be the same in eternity. There is success. So I end with our application. So when we are presented with these words, global missions, and especially when you hear that second word, missions, It is all too easy to instinctively look at ourselves 
perhaps to look at what we're going to lose. When I give commands such as all Christians must consider how the Lord is calling them to go overseas. And if the Lord specifically calls them to stay, to send, to consider that. When we hear those words, do we instinctively look at ourselves? To look at what we're going to lose, to look at what we're going to leave behind, our jobs, our careers, our friends and families, the best opportunities for our children, frankly, even your health. But don't look at Jonah. Don't look at yourselves. Look at God. Or when you get intimidated at the magnitude of the nations, don't be fixated on Nineveh. Don't look at the magnitude of Nineveh. Nineveh, look at the grace of God that's already being displayed in the nations. When we hear about people coming to know Jesus, when we hear about churches being built and established all over the world, even when we see the humbling wrath that we see. Don't look to Nineveh. Don't look to Jonah. Look to Christ. We may be the biggest fools, but we can look. Our text says, look unto me. I, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. That's the sign of Jonah. That's what Jesus was referring to when when the Pharisees asked Jesus, Jesus, do something great for us. Do a great miracle. Show us the greatness of your salvation. And he says, the only sign you'll receive is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the deep for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. The only sign he gives The only sign we need, the only sign that is powerful enough for salvation is the message of the gospel, the miracle of Jesus' death and his resurrection. You know, when I think about global missions, when I think about my role, and especially when I think about our church's role, to be honest, my lack of faith sometimes makes me think, you know, what's the point? What's the use? Yeah, I like the state of the world today, and as many of you know, we're trying to send our families to a certain place of the world, but with the situation of this global pandemic, our target country hasn't opened up for about a year now. I even look at our members. I look at our church and the hold that life's busyness has on us and and the overwhelming attention and culture that we're fighting with that says, do what's best for you. And in that moment, the grace of God, a question comes up asking, Luke, are you fixated on Jonah? Are you fixated on yourself? On renewal mainline? Are you fixated on me? You know, on a good day, I may think, you know what though? We are sending our first family overseas as Renewal Mainline. You know, Lord willing, my wife and I and our little Wooster, we're on deck to go too. You know, we have another family going with them from West Philly. You know, we have a missions committee now almost up and running full speed. You know, we sent over 30 mission packs this year, even without CGs, not physically gathering and so forth. And then, again, by the grace of God, that question comes up. 
Are you fixated on Jonah? Are you fixated on Renewal Mainline and its ability and its great successes? Or are you fixated on the power of God and His ability to bring Nineveh to its knees, to bring the nations and all of their people groups to their knees in God-honoring worship? Friends, God is preparing Nineveh in the world today. As we've taught before here at our church, there are many people groups in this world, those with distinct and unique cultures and identities, over 7,000 of them in the world who haven't heard the name of Jesus. And there is grace, God's grace in these groups, just as there was grace in the Ninevites. And also, God is preparing many Jonas in the world today. Even disobedient, rebellious sinners, and at times apathetic, those to whom God commands even a second time to go and proclaim the gospel because Jonah was a work in progress, far from being adequate. And yet, that's who God uses because in such weak vessels, God's power is displayed. So in this month, every month, when we hear those words, global missions, do not be intimidated at the magnitude of the task, but be amazed at the grace of God in the nations. Do not be discouraged by the weakness of our spiritual abilities or the inadequacies of our church, but in the power of God, in the message that we proclaim. So as we dedicate this month, let's commit to praying. Let's commit to considering the question, God, what would you have me do? Because I want to see exactly what you're doing in the nations and how you plan to use me. Let's pray. Before I pray for us, I just want to give everyone a minute and come to God honestly saying, Lord, I'm going to come to you open-minded and just ask you for this month, how would you have me serve you in the area of global missions? There may be a lot of things you bring to the table, many things that our nation and our families and our communities need. But at the same time, without looking at ourselves, looking at God's grace, His power, let's commit our months, our lives to Him. And God, what would you have me do? Let's pray like that, and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are sorry and we confess. We are fools. We are fools for not considering you in our lives. We are fools for thinking so small and little of you. We are fools for thinking that we can do things with our own strength. But God, let us be fools who look at Christ. 
to know that if we look at Christ, even nations can come to their knees. Give us that faith. And in that faith, help us to enter the joy of our Master this day, this month, for all of our lives. For whatever success and fruit we bring, that we may hear your words that invite us in. God, that is what we want for our church. Guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us look to Christ now as we sing of his greatness.